So Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask now that you would speak to us through your holy word. Lord, we ask that you would pierce our hearts, transform our lives. Lord, we come again and we put our lives on the altar, and we ask that the fire of the Spirit would fall on us. May the gospel of Christ Jesus permeate this region. And Lord, we're praying for a move of God to sweep through this place. And may Jesus be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now we'll return again to Ezra chapter 3. And remember that we're dealing with what you would call the post-exilic people. They've um, been in Babylon now for 70 years. For 70 years, the Jews have been in Babylon. And at the decree of Cyrus the Persian, who's now conquered Babylon, they've been uh, released to return to Jerusalem and rebuild um, the city of David. Now, remember the first week of our study, the refrain of Ezra chapter 1 was, the Lord stirred up their hearts. And so as we've worked our way now to Ezra chapter 3, what we realize is that not every Jew returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, that only those whom God stirred up their hearts. And if we would have taken the time to go through the list and the genealogies, we would see that many, many Jews stayed in the territories in which they lived. Now, not to get too much into a line of chronology here, um, but when you think about Esther even, Esther's kind of slap in the middle of... um, slap in the middle of these stories from Zerubbabel to Ezra. And so Esther was still living in the land. She didn't return to Jerusalem. And so... When you think of these people in this light, we're very much dealing with a kind of remnant of folks who God stirred their hearts up to take on a task which is monumental. Most of these Jews have never been to Jerusalem. Again, they were in Babylon for 70 years. I don't know if you know this or not, but people don't live much longer, right? Like most of these people were born in Babylon. They had homes in Babylon. Their families were were scattered across the Babylonian Empire. There was only a select people who God stirred their hearts, who would leave behind their families and their lives and their work and their social lives to pursue this God dream of seeing Jerusalem rebuilt. There's something about these people, a faith, a zeal, that's unique. Now this week I was reading J.C. Ryle, who... um, I believe J.C. Ryle died in the year 1900. He was an Anglican minister, um, but a great writer. And I was reading J.C. Ryle on the life of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, again, preacher in the the Great Awakening, um, one of the original Methodists. George Whitfield, if you didn't know, was by far the best preacher um, of the Awakenings. George Whitfield would preach to 30,000 people, open air. I don't I don't know if you know this, but microphones weren't invented yet. And so just letting it rip, man. Um, I love this story. I'm talking now. I'm going to take too long. I didn't preach last weekend, so sorry. Um, I love this story of Benjamin Franklin, who became a, a friend of George Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin went to hear George Whitfield preach. And he wasn't actually listening to George Whitfield preach. He was kind of pacing around because think of Benjamin Franklin's mind is thinking, how is his voice carrying so far? And so there's this story of Benjamin Franklin kind of walking around the city trying to like kind of analyze how George Whitfield was able to preach, I think on this occasion, to 20,000 people, again, open air. Now I'm reading Ryle on this point in Whitfield's life where the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley, asked Whitfield to come to Savannah. 
And in Savannah, Whitfield began to work with an orphanage. Now, he would work with this orphanage for the rest of his life. It's actually a really interesting story. But when he returned from Savannah back to the homeland, back to England, he found that all of the churches had kind of shut him out. And he was no longer able to preach in the, the Anglican churches where he had kind of made his ministry. And that's that would be like all of the churches in America deciding that Billy Graham was no longer allowed to preach. Like it, it would be like that. It's very strange. And so Whitfield had known great success. All, at this point, he's going around Europe, and all of a sudden he returns to Europe, and he's not allowed to preach anywhere. That's a really strange thing. And, and they had pretty much rallied against Whitfield because what he was preaching was is that every individual must be born again. You, you had to have a personal experience with the Holy Ghost where He caused your heart to become uh, regenerate, where you were born again. It wasn't just about becoming a member of a church. You could have church membership till you're blue in the face, but you're not saved until you give your life fully to Christ and have the power of the Holy Ghost infuse your life. That was Whitfield's message, and the churches didn't want to hear anything of it. So Wesley, the Wesleys give Whitfield this bright idea to do what's called open-air preaching. Now, again, think the church has shut him out. Billy Graham of the day. You're not allowed to preach here anymore. So Whitfield decides, let's go to the coal mines. We'll stand outside, and when the coal miners come out, we'll let it rip. And so there's these, these stories of, and this is unheard of, of Whitfield, the greatest preacher of the day, just laying into, letting loose the gospel message as coal miners come out of the coal mines for the day. And there's stories of tears just dripping down their faces, black faces now streaking with tears as they hear the gospel. He would go to these parks where the poor folks gathered in the afternoon. Uh, thousands of people would be outside having lunch with their families, and here comes Whitfield ready to rip, just letting it loose. And you see great salvations. Now, for the rest of Wesley and the Whitfield's, uh, Whitfield and the Wesley's life, they would preach wherever. Whitfield didn't care if it was a church, a barn, a field. If it could hold people, he was ready to preach. And I'm reading Ryle on this part of Whitfield's life, which I've known and read before, but Ryle kept using this phrase about George Whitfield. He kept calling him an, an holy aggressor. So Whitfield is a holy aggressor. I was thinking as I thought about that of the scripture in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Scholars really struggle with what exactly that line of scripture means, but most believe that what it could mean, um, the way that the Greek lies here, is that the kingdom of heaven is advancing violently, and the violent take hold of it, the aggressive take hold of it. I thought of John Wesley, he said this, it's a quote of John Wesley I've always loved, he said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin, desire nothing but God, I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. John Wesley said, I don't care if they are ordained or if they're educated. Give me men who fear nothing but sin and want nothing but God. And we'll set up the kingdom of God in the nations. Now, what Wesley, uh, I like to think about the fact, again, that Whitfield is most profound preacher of his day and Wesley and Whitfield you know would be at odds against each other from time to time but at the end of the day we're very close friends um, but Wesley really made his mark you know you see Wesley Chapel and Wesley Boulevard and Wesley's names everywhere he really made his mark in rallying and here he says give me a hundred men but he rallied much more preachers 
Methodist. Again, he didn't care if they were educated or not, but he was really looking for aggressive people. Aggressors. People on their toes who would go anywhere, preach anything, were willing to believe God to see regions shake and fall under the kingdom. He was looking for aggressors, and he organized aggressors, and they watched God change the earth. Now, again, as we turn to our text, I can't explain to you the monumental task of these exiles who have essentially been slaves now for 70 years, seeing in the prophets that they're supposed to return to Jerusalem, which has been burned to the ground, and they're supposed to rebuild the temple that Solomon built. Now, Solomon was the richest king of the day, right? Like money everywhere. Great, great artisans ready to help him. And now these people must leave everything that they have and believe God to rebuild David's city. They must be aggressive. They're going to be attacked. They're going to be mocked. They're going to be slandered. They're going to feel like they don't have the resources or the skills. But there's something holy about these people. And the scripture says their hearts have been stirred and they have a faith to believe God to do something in their day that's beyond their means. I was talking to, um, to Kip Simmons, who's one of our deacons here, and Kip said, uh, one thing about this church is we've always been pioneers. For the history of this church, this church has always been about, we'll go anywhere, we'll do anything, we, we want to see the kingdom come. I, I believe, I told you that Haley's van, the doors literally fell off like this, right off the van. Um, and that's the time to buy a new car, okay? So I got we got Haley a new car, a used car, obviously. Um, but it's it's newer and it's got seat warmers, which we've never had seat warmers before. That's pretty cool. Some of you guys have like fans in your butt. I have no idea why you would need that. <laughs> you weirdos. Um, it's nice to turn the seat warmers on in the morning. But I've said from the moment I walked into this church is that you are not seat warmers. I believe you're holy aggressors. And and we're not about gathering just to do church and just to have another church on the island. We are aggressively believing that God's going to do something bigger than us. That this region is going to fall under the glorious hand of God Almighty. I, I am thankful. I'm, y'all hear me. I'm thankful to be a part of a church of aggressors, of people ready to go and to believe. And so um, let's go to the text and we'll try to draw out some some things that, that pioneers, that aggressors must understand and believe. We'll start in verse 6 today. I know we read verse 6 last time, but I just need to give a little bit of context. Ezra 3, verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to burn uh, burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the Masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8, Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltai, and Jeshua, Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. 
They appointed the Levites from 20 years and old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. They sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's house, old men, who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house that was being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. Now remember again that David didn't build the temple, right? He made preparations for Solomon to build the temple. And when Solomon built the temple, the scripture tells us it took seven years. And he dedicated the temple and the glory of the Lord fell. And again, we can't emphasize enough the wealth that Solomon had, the ability, the resources that Solomon had. Now these people watched that city. Many never saw the city. But they know that that glorious city, Jerusalem, the city of David, was totally ransacked and burned to the ground. And now we're reading as the, the first thing they did, we read last time I preached to you, was they rebuilt an altar to start with sacrifices. Now we're reading as they lay the foundation of the temple and get ready to see the second house of God built. Now, we said before that, and the scripture told us that in the second year, second year that they've been now back in Jerusalem, and in the second month, they began the work. Remember, Yeshua is the high priest. So they have a high priest, but um, Zerubbabel is the governor sent from Cyrus to oversee the work in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is not free. She doesn't have a king. She has a governor whose name is Zerubbabel, who's also a Jew. And so Yeshua the priest and Zerubbabel, they are united together to begin the work. The scripture tells us continually, they're, they're united together in prophecy, they're united together in list. These two men come together and they begin to initiate the work of the Lord. They're yoked together. They organize the Levites to help oversee, the priests, to help oversee the labor that needed to take place. Now, we see in the text that Cyrus gave them a grant. So they do have some resources. Um, and so they're, they're beginning to use the grant to see the resources, the, the lumber and the goods come to them that they need. And we find in these opening lines, I guess I can't emphasize this enough, we find that the people are wonderfully unified. There is clear leadership, Yeshua and Zerubbabel. And th that clear leadership has now commissioned the Levites, according to Moses, to oversee the work that needed to take place. And what we have, again, is this remnant of, of aggressors, this remnant of Jews who've left everything behind and they're beginning to work, to labor, believing that somehow they're going to see Solomon's glorious temple rebuilt. Now, 
we see in the text that, that, that the text wants you to see that they have no jockeying for power, that there is no ego taking place here, there is no one in the camp second-guessing Zerubbabel or, or nitpicking the decisions of Yeshua, that these people are totally unified because they have a transcendent mission. Okay, aggressors, um, those who believe that they're going to see the kingdom violently advance, they are so bent down on the mission of seeing the gospel preached to the four corners of the earth that they don't have the time to sit back and nitpick, or they don't have the, the time or the energy to try to jockey for position. They don't care about ego or whose name is on the thing. It's just about the mission being accomplished. Um, a mentor said to me once, before I even worked here at this church, he said, Caleb, we were talking about a scenario in the church we were working at. And he said, Caleb, there are two kinds of people. This is probably an oversimplification, but it helped me. He said, there are two kinds of people in a church, typically. The kinds who, who are rowing the boat and the kind who are rocking the boat. And he said, the people with oars in their hands, they ain't got time to be rocking. And, and that's very much what we see here in this text, is this people, these aggressors, they have oars in their hands. Got no time for bickering or clamoring. There's direction, there's leadership, and the people get to work. They are unified. We need to um, realize, hear me for a second, that when a church or a people lose the vision, right? We have a transcendent vision to preach the gospel to the four corners of the earth, to see the power of the Spirit transform this region. It's given to us in the text of Scripture. It's not my vision, it's the vision given to us from the Lord. So we have a vision that we're supposed to be pouring our energy out towards, trying to accomplish, believing God for souls, to be laboring in the harvest. But when a church forgets her vision, when the transcendent vision, the bigger than me and bigger than you vision, when that begins to become lost, then there's room for jockeying and ego and bickering and fighting for power and position. But if we'll keep the flame of God stewarded in our hearts... Where, like the Methodists, like Wesley's group, we say, you know, we fear nothing but sin and want nothing but God. We don't want, we don't want our way with the paint color or the carpet color or our pet project or our mission or our group to be highlighted. We don't really care about any of those things. All we want is God to release and reveal His glory for the, the gospel of Christ Jesus to be preached and for sinners to repent and for drug addicts to find liberty and for the demonically oppressed to find freedom and for there to be real life in joy in Jesus, when that's all we want, that transcendent mission and vision squelches all of the bickering and jockeying. If we keep that flame hot, the flame will just eat up ego. But if we lose the vision and the mission, if we stop living with holy aggression in our bones, then naturally, sooner or later, we'll start bickering with one another. But these people had no bickering. All they had was fire. And again, we're going to find in chapter 4, we're going to find naysayers. In chapter 4, we're going to find folks coming to try to belittle these folks who are working. Um, think of even Nehemiah's life, who's, again, a contemporary of Ezra. And Nehemiah is saying, I, what, I can't come down. I've got work to do. I'm not coming down to talk to you. Um, there, there must be in the hearts of aggressors a commitment to vision that says, you can sit over in the corner in the coffee shop and gossip and bicker and slander and do all that, but I'm rowing. 
I'm working. I'm laboring with sweat and tears because Jesus is wonderful and beautiful and worthy of my best. And that's good preaching. Uh Now, the next point. You'll have to remember that historically, what history teaches is that Ezra also wrote chronicles. And so he records for us the building of Solomon's temple. He records the life of David. And so Ezra is a historian. He's the greatest historian of, um, of the scriptures in general. He's called the greatest scribe. And in and, and our passage today, remember, we're reading about Zerubbabel. We're not even reading about Ezra yet. He hasn't come on the scene yet. Um, but Ezra's recording for us what happened in Zerubbabel's life. And so there's, some, there's a theme happening in the scripture that I don't have the time to fully unpack, but it's essentially this. Ezra is intentionally using language um, to yoke these people rebuilding the temple to the original temple being built. So he tells us that in the second year and the second month they began to build because Ezra is going to show us that it took them seven years to rebuild the temple. And it took um, Solomon seven years to build the temple. There's these continual patterns. Like, for instance, he's telling us that they're getting, um, they're getting lumber from Lebanon, which Solomon did. And they're bringing it through Joppa, which um, not through the city Joppa, but through the port Joppa, which Solomon did. And, and so do you see what I'm saying? He's, he's, he wants us to see an echoing and a refrain of these people's work. He wants us, you to see it as a parallel between the work of the original builders of the temple. Now, I think that in a very real way, in Ezra's heart and in the heart of these men, they were looking back in history and seeing God's faithfulness and seeing God's move and the work that happened in the life of Solomon and and through the planning of David. And as they looked back in history, they found identity and purpose and, and vision for what they were doing. Now, People often say to me, Caleb, why do, you, why do you love church history so much? And why do you talk about Whitfield and Wesley and Evan Roberts? Because I find that in history, as I look at the life of Evan Roberts, for instance, who is the leader of the great Welsh revival, who is a man of great prayer, he'd come into a meeting and he wouldn't, everyone's ready for him to preach. He wouldn't get up and preach. He'd sit down in the front row and just cry in prayer. And eventually everyone just fall on the ground and repent. Um, and when I read the life of Evan Roberts, I find an invitation See, from my perspective, every person, this is, I'm talking to you from a heart here, this is my perspective, every person is carrying a torch whether you like it or not. I like to be intentional enough to choose whose torch I carry. <laughs> you, you see what I mean by that? We're, we're, all pass, we're all carrying legacy, but I think that the wise ones will look back in history and receive an invitation from a George Whitfield, not necessarily to be the greatest preacher in all the earth, but as I read the life of Whitfield, I find an invitation to live with my heart on fire, that, that there are some in history who have known the depths of God's beauty and glory. And when I read the life of Wesley, I realize that I don't have to do what everyone else is doing. That, that I can, in history, find moves of God where people of God grabbed hold of him and didn't let go, And that somewhere in reading history and loving history, there's a baton that can be passed if I'm willing to carry it. I think wise people choose what torch they carry. And I think that's what's happening here. These people are now building, they're laying the foundation in the same place where Solomon's temple was. And again in chapter 4, we're going to see 
that there are going to be lots of mockers who come and say, look at that. You think, you think that is as beautiful as Solomon's temple? You think you have the skills to build what Solomon built? People are going to say, you're ignorant, you're dumb, you're going to fail. Um, but these people seem to not care what their naysayers are saying because their eyes are looking back at what God did in the life of Solomon and they're saying, if you did it then, you can do it again. If you provided the resources then, you can do it in me. There are people in history who walked in faith and believed that God was able and they heard his word and they just trusted it no matter what they saw. I'm going to live like those people. You can live like naysayers, I don't care but I'm going to choose to identify and yoke myself with aggressors. And I think as a church, as a people, not that, not that living in, in church history or living in biographies is necessarily the most spiritual thing we can do, but I think we do want to look at history and decide what torch we're going to carry. And I said to you maybe a couple of months ago now, when I read the story of the Moravians, who prayed for a hundred years straight. They had a continual prayer meeting for a hundred years and changed the earth. When I look at the Moravians, I go, I, I like that. And the kind of church I want to lead, I look around at, and I don't know if you know this or not, but there's modern church networks and modern church conferences. And you can go and learn. You can learn great things. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But I go to church conferences and I hear about what this church is doing and that church is doing. And so a lot of churches are doing great things. And some churches are just patting each other on the back because people have egos. Um, but I look around at the, the landscape of things and I say, I don't know. I, I, I like to be aggressive like the Moravians. I'd like to just cry and pray and believe that God can flip our region upside down. I'd like to work and sweat for the gospel of Christ Jesus. I'd like to get serious about holiness, get serious about fasting and prayer. I'd like to really believe what the scriptures say when it, say, when it says that one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. That God has a mission and God has a plan. And that on the last day, every tribe and tongue will gather before the throne and release great songs of praise. There must be some revival. There must be some movement of God that sweeps the nations in as a harvest. And I think rather than just being a part of what everyone else is doing, I'd like to be a part of what the Moravians did. And, and I'd like to carry that torch. Now I'm taking way too long. But you don't listen fast enough. <laughs> and so Again, we find unity and we find aggression. They just keep working, even when it doesn't look beautiful or glorious. Even when they see what they're building, and it, it does not. Their eyes do not see Solomon's temple. They just keep moving forward because God asked them to. God stirred their hearts, so they just keep marching forward, even with what they see with their eyes isn't glorious. So the labor's finished now. The foundation has been laid, and we were reading of a celebratory moment where Israel comes together. And it's interesting, it says that they had singers come like David prescribed. Now, when we read the previous portion of Ezra uh, 3, it told us that they built altars and sacrifices like Moses prescribed. So they, they sacrificed like Moses told them to, but now they're getting ready to worship like David told them to. So they've got singers and instruments and symbols, and they're getting ready to release worship on the foundation of where Solomon's temple sat. There's no walls or anything built, but the foundation. And what they sing is significant. It's really significant. Man, I've got to hurry. Verse 11, they sing, For he is good, and his steadfast love endures 
forever. He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Why sing that? Well, it is an echo in the Psalms. It's an echo throughout the the Scriptures, but it becomes fascinating when you realize that these people believe they're living in the fulfillment of prophetic ministry. And so, Jeremiah, in chapter 33, remember Jeremiah prophesied the fall of Jerusalem, right? He's the weeping prophet because he was crying out, Jerusalem's going to be burned to the ground. But Jeremiah also prophesied that in 70 years, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And in Jeremiah chapter 33, he prophesied this, Thus says the Lord, 33, verse 10 through 12, Thus says the Lord, In this place of which you say, It is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate. So, so once the, the cities of Jerusalem are totally torn down, and you say there's, no, there's not even man or beast here, it's totally desolate, it will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the Lord. And this is what they'll sing. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land, as first says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations, and shepherds, and resting flocks. So Jeremiah prophesied before Jerusalem was even destroyed, that in 70 years it would be rebuilt, and that a people would gather in Jerusalem, and they would sing, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Why do they sing, the Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever? Because they believe they are fulfillment of prophetic ministry. They believe that the work they're setting their hands to is what Jeremiah prophesied some 100 years earlier. They believe that God declared that they would return, that they would be successful, and that they would release worship in the region. They find themselves in a divine moment. Now, I I just point out one more thing before I get to my last point here. I want you to see that the singers sang, the musicians played, but then the scripture says that all of the people released a great shout. What we find in this text here is that worship is never watching musicians play. Worship is never listening to those who sing better than the rest of us sing. That the musicians and the singers led, but the congregation was supposed to release a great shout of worship and praise. This is not a this is not entertainment that we're participating in. This is corporate declaration of the beauty and the glory and the goodness of God. Lastly, one more point before we close. We read that many shouted with joy, while others wept with great tears, great shouts of sorrows. The weeping ones, we're told, were the heads of the houses. The scripture says they were the heads of the houses. The fathers who had seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. The scripture says that the weeping and the shouting for joy were so loud it was hard to distinguish what was even happening. It must have been very clear for the fathers, for the older men, that this temple, the way it was going, would not be as glorious as the temple that Solomon built. And they had seen Solomon's temple. And so I think not only are they, they weeping over Solomon's temple, they're weeping over the sins of Jerusalem that brought the judgment of God. And they're watching their sons and their grandsons build a new temple. And they're watching their sons and their grandsons rejoice with joy. But all they can do is cry because they say, this is not going to be as glorious as Solomon's house. Now I want you to look with me at Haggai, Haggai chapter 2. Haggai is a contemporary prophet. 
um, of Zerubbabel. And I, I want you to hear what he said in chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. He says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltai, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, that's Yeshua, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, This is what the prophet says to the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who is left among you who saw Solomon's temple? How do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? He's saying, you old men who saw the former house, is it nothing to you? You weep and you moan. Is this nothing before your eyes? He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you peoples of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you first came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So Haggai acknowledges that what they see with their eyes is less than what they used to see with Solomon's temple. But he says to Zerubbabel and Joshua, I don't care what the old men are saying about this temple's not going to be as great as Solomon. I don't care about the weeping or the moaning. He says to him, I want you to work. Fear not. Keep working. Don't listen to the moaning and groaning. Keep building. Be strong. Work. For I am in your midst. And then he concludes in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9 with this. You know the scripture, but let's put it in its context here. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What did Haggai just prophesy? That the second temple's glory would be greater than the first temple's glory. Now, I passed over a few lines of Scripture where, where Haggai prophesied that there would be gold and silver brought into the second temple and that eventually its glory would surpass the glory of Solomon's temple. Now, tell me about the glory of Solomon's temple. Solomon sacrificed thousands of beasts. Had all of Israel come together and sing, the Lord is good and His steadfast love endures forever. And as they dedicated the temple, the Shekinah glory of God, the glory cloud descended in the room and all the priests fell on their face because they couldn't stand on their feet and, and, and minister because the presence of God was so heavy and weighty. They just fell on their faces and worshipped. The glory of Solomon's temple was Shekinah. Now think about the second temple. Remember in the life of Jesus, Jesus says this, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. You remember what they say to him? Like our fathers, 40 years to build this temple. You're going to build it in three days? Notice that discrepancy. Because the text in Ezra tells us that it took seven years to build the temple. What are they referring to when they say 40 years? They're referring to Herod's, what's called Herod's beautification of the temple. So for 40 years before the life of Jesus, silver and gold of the nations was brought into the second temple. And for 40 years, they remodeled, they beautified, they decorated with gold and silver the second house. And so there was silver and gold that eventually was brought into the temple that they built. But the glory that surpassed the Shekinah glory of Solomon was this, that the feet of God in the flesh would walk on those stones. The soles of Jesus' feet, God-man, walked into that room. And the peace that was prophesied entered as the Prince of Peace stood in that temple and declared reconciliation with the Father. Stood in that temple and declared the gospel, the kingdom, the glory. It wasn't a cloud, it was a man. 
So now put yourself in the shoes of these folks. They're laying a foundation. Their fathers are weeping and crying. The naysayers are saying, nothing you're doing will ever be significant. And the prophet says, I don't care what they say. Keep working. Because the glory of the latter house shall surpass the former. It's not about what they see. It's about what God prophesied and declared. And one day, none of them would be around to see it. But one day, the very essence of glory. What is glory other than the person of Christ Jesus? Like, what is, what is glory? It's just the radiation of the being of God. The very definition of glory would stand on the stones that they laid. Keep working, Haggai says. Now, as we get ready to close, worship team, come for me. What do we learn today? I think what I want to say is that we want to carry the torch of aggressors. We, we don't want to be seat warmers, right? They're nice in your cars. They're not nice in your church. It doesn't work. <laughs> it, it's not about building any man or any woman or any gifting up on a platform for all to see. We're not into personality, cultic worship, none of that. We're into building the kingdom of Christ Jesus, to going anywhere, to, to doing anything he asks us to do because we want to carry the torch of people who laid their lives down. We learned that there are times and seasons where people find success in their mission as they keep the mission transcendent. As we keep the vision hot in our hearts, as we row the boat, there's not much time to sit around bickering and moaning. And so I want to say to you again, we've got so much work to do. This region is still wildly unchurched. We've got, we've got folks who desperately need to hear the gospel of Christ Jesus. And I don't know if you know this or not, but like the, the biblical idea is that if God placed you here, welcome, welcome missionaries. You may be a dentist, but scripturally speaking, you're, you're a missionary dentist. And, and there's something very, very wrong with the church who views themselves as seat warmers to hear the ministry gift of a man. I want you to know, I don't view you that way. I view you as holy aggressors, ready to lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel. So we learned that they had unity because they had vision. We learned that there would be naysayers, and we'll have naysayers. As we get ready to try to really see God move in this region, we'll have naysayers, no doubt about that. But it's according to scripture, we have to, we have to bite down on our vision and believe that God's going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. And even when we don't see it, even when it feels like maybe, even when it feels like nothing's happening and the atmosphere feels cold and I'm preaching the gospel and you're preaching the gospel and you're praying for your neighbor and it feels like nothing's breaking and nothing's shaking. The scriptural command is you are to walk in faith and not by sight. You keep praying, you keep preaching, you keep evangelizing. Remember whose torch you're carrying men and women who laid their lives down for the gospel to see the nations come to know Jesus. You keep pressing. The last thing we saw is that God prophesied to these people that your work one day will be glorious. And, and not to prophesy. I'm not, I'm not declaring a prophetic revelation today. I am just saying, and I think I can say this with scriptural authority, that what we see today may feel weak. But if we'll keep laying our lives down, if you'll keep marching forward, and a hundred years from now, when there's dirt on all of our heads, I promise you we're going to leave something behind us. This, this, this region will know a move of God. 
there will be freedom and deliverance. I'm praying that 100 years behind us, our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids are hot with the Holy Ghost still preaching the gospel message. It may feel weak today, but I don't care what it feels like today. It may look small today. I don't despise the days of small beginnings. It may feel insignificant today. Who cares? Let's pray and believe and press and, and march forward. Let's be aggressive as we trust God to use our sacrifices, our lives. despise the days of small beginnings. The easiest thing to do in life is to sit back and they say. But when God puts his hand on you, and maybe that's what we're really after, when the hand of God rests on a man, rests on a woman, it's like there is nothing fulfilling or satisfying in life outside of serving him. Go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. first. I'm talking this morning about being aggressive and seeing regions transformed and seeing the gospel preach. But if you're here this morning and you've never really given your life to Christ, maybe you've been a member of a church or your grandma drug you to church and you said to yourself, I'm not really into just being a seat warmer. We want to tell you today that what the scripture promises is that if you'll give your life to Christ, if you'll yield yourself, surrender yourself to Jesus, that all of your sins would be totally eradicated before God and that God would place in you the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, and that you would be commissioned and, and sent out to really see transformation and change in our region. I think so many times we're frustrated with the drug addiction in our region. We're frustrated with the depression and anxiety in our region. We're frustrated with divorce in our region. And I'm sorry to tell you that the solution to all of that is the gospel of Christ Jesus. Now you can give your life to Jesus and become a part of his solution or you can keep rolling around in the mud what the gospel promises is that today you come to the altar today you come down here and say i'm ready to give my life to jesus let somebody pray with you today you can become a part of the solution your sins forgiven and you can fall in love with jesus who's wildly beautiful second I think there are some of us in the room who would say, I've never really felt God's hand on my life. I've never really encountered the Holy Spirit's power. You know, we talk about the baptism of the Spirit, about the Spirit pouring His power out on you. If that's you and you're just saying, maybe you're saying, I just need, a, I just need God's power on my life again. If that's you, you say, I've been in this church for six months, man. I see something different, but I don't really know the power of God for myself. I want to ask you to come get in the altars today going to lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, and believe the Holy Spirit to come and fall on you today. Lastly, if you're sick, any dealing with any sickness, I want you to come. There were words say people are dealing with bleeding gums, your teeth hurt. If that's you, I want you to come. All right, the altars are open. If you need to give your life to Jesus and be commissioned, come. If you need a fresh touch of the Spirit, I want you to come now. I want you to hesitate, look around, and wonder what your neighbor is going to do. If you're dealing with any sickness, come. Come on, let's get serious. Let's do business with God today. Play my whole life, my whole life.